Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I mean, place matters. Place matters. I mean, a lot of this stuff we know empirically, right? There's just been so much research over the last 10 years. And where you are born, the zip code that you are born in, is a predictor of where you're going to end up. And so, first of all, that should just outrage all of us because that goes against the very ethos of this country, right? That was entrepreneur and educator Yusuf Dahl. And Yusuf knows a thing or two about ending up in all kinds of places. Growing up in Milwaukee, he was the youngest of three boys being raised by a single mother. Life was not easy on his mom, and she had struggled with chemical dependency and alcohol addiction. It was a household and a childhood defined by chaos, instability, and scarcity. And so when the head of that household is suffering from these type of issues, that there ends up being this leadership vacuum. And that was initially filled by my oldest brother, who is seven years my senior. Uh, he's somebody who I looked up to. Um, so oftentimes he would, you know, when my mother would be gone for days at a time and there would be nothing to eat at the house, he would be that provider. And so he really kind of stepped into that void and in many ways became my role model. Even though Yusuf's older brother helped fill the void at home, he too got involved in a life of crime. And at 16, he was sentenced to juvenile prison. Yusuf was only nine years old then. And the hard lessons he took from the ones he loved would propel him from poverty all the way to Princeton and beyond. So how did he break the cycle? And how can we as a society use our collective voice to help others do the same? Every person in this country, quite frankly, deserves access to safe, quality, and affordable housing. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. A growing share of Americans say that affordable housing is a major problem where they live. According to the Pew Research Center, 57% of adults living in lower-income households say availability of affordable housing is an issue in their community. Concerns about it have even outpaced other local worries, like drug addiction and crime. Sadly, some laws in this country, like the Thurman Amendment, don't make things any easier. This law that has been on the books since 1968 permits the denial of housing to those that have been convicted of drug manufacturing or distribution. The man you are about to meet, Yusuf Dahl, is working to change this. And don't forget to check out his recent opinion piece in the Washington Post called Strom Thurmond Blocked Me From Running a Home, which we will also link in the show notes. 
You know, it's interesting because I, I, I love my mother dearly. Now, she passed a number of years ago, but I often say I am who I am because of my mother, but not always in the positive sense, right? How I learned to manage money was watching her every month waste the resources that our family would receive from the government. So she was a profligate spender when she had it. Um, and so I remember, honestly, at a very young age, just watching her manage her money. And I'd be like, that is not how you do it. Um, so a lot of what I learned came from her just to do the opposite. But for us going through that situation, um, and I think this is really important for young men, because how do you become a man? That's modeled for you. And so in our household, that father figure was absent. And my mother, you know, again, because of her chemical dependency and, and alcohol issues would actually, um, she was involved in a number of relationships and a lot of very kind of short-term transient relationships. And, you know, as a young child, so you figure when I was six, my oldest brother was 13. And so, you know, at those ages, we there wasn't much we could do. We were all kind of fairly helpless in that regard. But I remember when my oldest brother, um, so he was sentenced to juvenile detention, like a juvenile prison when he was maybe 16. So I would have been nine. And so he came back home when he was 18. So around 18, 19, I, I remember this vividly. So we're all like living together in the house, but now, I mean, he's 19, he's 19, 20, he's a grown man. And so I was like 12 at the time. And my mother brought a gentleman home, something that she's done just countless times. And I remember the three of us were just kind of like sitting in the living room. So she had, it was a, a flat and we lived in a two family flat. We rented it and there was a living room, dining room, and she had converted like the dining room into her bedroom. And so we were all in the living room and she comes home, she's inebriated. And, you know, we had been through this entire process many, many times. And she says, oh, you know, this is such and such. I don't even think she remembered the guy's name, in fact, when she introduced him. And so they go into her room and shut the door. And I just remember being incredibly angry. And I got up and I said, F this. And I ran to the door and kicked it in. And my brothers just followed me. And we literally beat this guy senseless. Like just beat this guy senseless. He was naked. They were, you know, involved in an intimate act. And uh, we beat this guy senseless. Kicked him out of the house. He was bloodied. You know, my mother's drunk, crying, hysterical. Ah, what are you doing? You know, and but that was the moment where I began to exercise. I think all of us began to exercise more agency over our lives and kind of what was happening. Not that agency was exercised in, in a good way, and I'm sure we're going to get into that. Um, but but I do remember that being a transformative moment from just kind of being young and a bystander. Yeah accepting everything that was happening to now trying to exercise some agency and influence what was happening. What did that act? What was the, it was clearly anger and rage. What did that represent? What was that anger and rage about? I mean, well, it's obvious, but, but I would love to hear it from you. Well, you know, and, and I would say certainly anger and rage for some of the things that I experienced, right? All of us as kids, but, but also anger and rage for my mother. Yeah. And, and one of the things I, I often think about, and it's motivated me personally, and I try to convey this, you know, to my daughter, is that life can be 
incredibly difficult and challenging. And life was not kind to my mother. I don't know everything she experienced as a child, right? And, and you know, I know some of the details of, of what happened to her, but I just always remember kind of growing up from that moment forward, life was not going to treat me any way it wanted to. Yeah. You know, it was anger at that moment, certainly for us, but it was also anger for my mother. And certainly some of the the beating that man received <laughs> was on her behalf as well. So yes, yeah, I get that rage for your mother and everything that she was going through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So eventually, you would end up dealing drugs in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So where is the shift in that? And if you can tell me sort of the evolution of that chapter of your life. So again, I always wanted to emulate my older brother. And, you know, as I started to age, so, you know, I was always a big kid, right? So 13 years old, you know, I was probably five, 11, six foot. And I would, try to do the things my older brother did. And so around that age, he began to enlist me in in some of his criminal behavior. And he sent me to execute a robbery on his behalf. And I remember we talked about it and logically thinking it through, the thought was, well, if I do it, if I get apprehended, I'll just get sent to the boy's home versus if he did it, you know, he would get a much longer sentence as an adult. And so my early kind of foray into criminal behavior was directed by him. And so I was apprehended and I ended up being sent to the same boy school that he was sent to. And when, and when I euphemistically use the word boy school, right, this is a juvenile prison. This is three hours from your home. It's surrounded by razor wire. It's in every way, shape and form is a prison. And so I was sentenced to that facility at 15 years old until my 18th birthday. And, you know, it's interesting because when I, when I look at my life in many different like contexts, so many of the situations that proved to be adverse for me, at least at first blush, ended up being advantageous, maybe not immediately, uh, but in time. So the fact that I was removed from my house at 15 until I was 18, it actually took me out of that environment. And so I was able to I don't want to say I use my time incredibly productive, but certainly I read and I, you know, I was able to get, I think, a better education in there than I would have had I been on the streets, right? So there was no drugs, there was no alcohol. Um, And so anyways, that was the experience from 15 to 18. Now, unfortunately, through that entire experience, probably the single greatest takeaway I had from spending, you know, two and a half years in this facility was that I was approaching everything wrong. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well, that's a great lesson to learn. You know, now you'll be on the straight and narrow. But when I say I was approaching everything wrong, through conversations with other people who were in that facility, I soon realized that, you know, doing things like robbery or petty larceny, that made no sense. The real opportunity existed in selling drugs. And so I had a a cellmate And this guy would regale me at night with tales of extravagance and consumption. Uh, Like what type of things is he talking about? Well, well, he had had cars. He had money, right? He had, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, people will often say money is not everything. But I will tell them when you do not have it, money is everything. Yeah. 
And so, you know, I'm listening to this guy and he's doing these amazing things. He has this financial capability and he's not like putting a gun to anyone. He's not taking anything from anyone. People are literally paying him for a product that he has. And now I fully acknowledge that this product causes tremendous harm in these communities. But again, what people do not understand who are not from these communities, drugs are so ubiquitous that when you're in these communities, it it almost seems normal. Yeah. And so as I listened to this guy, I said, that, that is what I need to be doing. And so after spending two and a half years in a juvenile facility, the big takeaway was I was going to come home and build a business selling drugs. During that two years, would your mom and your brothers come and visit? How much interaction did you have with your family? You know, very little. Um, So this facility I was in was three and a half hours from where we lived. My mother did not have a car. Her whole life, she never owned a car. Um, But I will say, and and again, I, I just love my mother dearly. Every year on my birthday, I could expect a card. Yeah. And, you know, a letter and, you know, $20 or whatever it was. And she didn't have any money. But throughout all of the setbacks I've had, and right, there's more to more for us to talk about. Like, you know, this, this, wasn't, my own, this <laughs> wasn't my only setback. But, you know, I often tell people this, you know, why my mother could not give us many things. She could not give us stability. She could not give us material comforts. But my mother, in her own way, always gave me love. And so I I remember as a young kid, like my mother's capacity for work was tremendous. Now, again, I think she completely misused that, right? She would spend all that time in the bar drinking, but but she her stamina was incredible. And so I remember as a young kid, you know, you're always going to visit your mom in the bar. And I used to hate this, but like if I would go there and she'd already been going for some time and she was inebriated, she'd be like, oh my God, here comes my baby, Jack or whoever would be sitting next to her. Do you know my son? He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And of course you would be embarrassed when she would do this, but she would say it so often that you would come to believe it. And so because my mother loved me, when I found myself in these situations of really incredibly challenging situations, right? Whether I'm in juvenile prison or adult prison, I knew I had to invest in myself, right? Because she loved me, I knew I was worth something. And because I knew I was worth something, I had to invest in myself. So I, I, you know, I I just, I think very highly of my mother and and I don't discount uh, what she did provide us, um, even though there were a lot of things she didn't. Well, it sounds like you knew you were loved, that she was dealing with her own demons to the best of her capability at that time, but you knew you were loved. And knowing you're loved by your mother or anyone for that matter, knowing you're unconditionally loved goes a long way. Well said. Okay, so you have these three years and you come out. And as you shared, this sets the stage to the beginning of a chapter of your life where you were very successfully dealing drugs. What, it, what did that chapter look like? I came home. I had this, this idea and this plan. And, you know, it, it's a market. It's, it's a terrible market. It's an illicit market. But the market for drugs is, is a market just like any other kind of product or service. And so 
There were people, there were customers, there were suppliers. And so the question was, well, how was I going to break into this market? I'm a small time dealer. I don't have any connection. So my product isn't necessarily superior. You know, I can't buy in bulk, so I can't offer anything cheaper. But the way I was able to get started is I was able to do things other people weren't willing to do. So oftentimes people like, after the bars close right at two o'clock in the morning, they would be looking for some product, but these people don't have a ton of money. So they just want to buy a small amount of it. And for a more established dealer, like you're not going to be up late at night to supply someone $20 worth of drugs at two in the morning, but I was happy to do that. And so that's kind of how I got my toehold. I was always available under any circumstances, like I just that dependability. And so I, began to build a customer base. And and some of these folks I knew, right? They were friends of my mother. And so I was able to leverage the resources at my disposal. Because remember, an entrepreneur always starts with three things. I don't care what business it is. An entrepreneur starts with who they are, what they know, and who they know. And so I was able to leverage those things to basically grow from being a a small-time dealer to uh, somebody, unfortunately, uh, who was doing it at a much greater scale. And what was the scale? You know, I had several drug houses across the city. Um, obviously, I was no longer dealing directly, you know, with the, the primary consumers of the product. What uh, is a drug house? Like, drug house 101. Terrible, terrible thing to have in your neighborhood. But to, to, to you know, break it down a little bit more. So essentially, what you would do is you'd find a rental property in an area that would lend itself to that type of traffic, right? So a drug house is a place where people come to purchase drugs, but it's in a neighborhood, right? So if all of a sudden some random person moves into your next door and you got hundreds of people coming in and out of there, it's problematic. You're probably going to call the police, right? Which is a bad thing for the person who's running that house. So there's certain considerations that you have, right? Can I put this on a busy street where maybe the traffic won't be noticed as much or And this is the unfortunate thing. Can I operate in a community where this is the norm? So people simply just don't even care. So sad. And so that's what you would do. You would rent a house, pay someone to go into that. And they would live there, right, for days at a time. And you would just supply the product. They would sell it, pick up the money, replenish, et cetera. Got it. And so at the peak, you have three of these drug running houses. I imagine financially you're doing really well. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And then is there um, an emotional disconnect or how is your internal world during this time? Well, on one hand, I did achieve a level of financial success and security that had evaded me my entire life. Again, something that people who aren't from these communities don't understand is the level of respect that comes with that. Yeah. You know, when people see you, even if they know how you're earning your living, it, it, it's it's ubiquitous. So it's it's accepted. And and in fact, in, in some misguided instances, people respect you even more. And so there was a level of security, respect that, quite frankly, I yearned for my entire life. Well, it's like the exact opposite of everything you had lacked as a little boy, right? The poverty, the lack of security, the lack of, and now you have the financial security, you have the respect, you know, it, 
makes a lot of sense. Well, and it was intentional, right? Yeah. Anyone who grows up in those situations you described, they're not aspiring to continue that as they get older. They want to change it. They want to break the cycle. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, oftentimes we're breaking it in counterproductive ways, which happened to me. So in that regard, things were going really well. You know, on the other hand, my mother was still struggling with chemical dependency and alcohol issues. And, you know, I, I remember thinking in, in a very um, youthful way that if I could provide what my mother needed financially, right, if I could provide the housing, if I could provide the resources she needed to live, she would not continue to make these bad decisions, and so one of the things I actually really struggled with, and, and I remember I would have a number of conversations and arguments with my mother, is I would say, why are you continuing to do these things? Like I would argue with her, like, why are you still going down to the bar every single day drinking? You're better than this. And of course, right, it was, it was very uh, immature thinking on my part, you know, not really understanding the deeper issues that drive those types of behaviors. But but I do remember feeling very torn about that because at the end of the day, I mean, that's the person I love most in this world. And she still suffered from the same challenges from when we were poor to now when I was able to provide for her. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually you would get caught, arrested and charged Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, how these things always end. And, and in fact, actually, I was very fortunate because mine ended in incarceration and not, you know, a different type of outcome yeah. um, where I wouldn't be here today. But, you know, I received a call uh, to deliver some product. And I, I noticed, like, I, I just had this feeling. You'll, you'll often hear people say that, right? Like hindsight is twenty twenty, whatever. Uh, so I just had this suspicion that something wasn't right. And so I actually did not go make the sell. I dropped the car off. The product was still in the car. And then I left. And, you know, shortly thereafter, the police then um, searched the car. They had, you know, surveillance of me in the car. And, you know, and so then I was, I was ultimately apprehended. It was with, I want to say, three ounces of cocaine, which in an absolute basis is not a huge amount, but you have to remember the time period I was apprehended. So this is the late nineties and, and for, for the amount of cocaine I was arrested with, I was facing 65 years in prison. Wow. How old were you? 18 years old. Wow. 18. And, and, you know, it's these moments of adversity, right. That actually define you. I mean, they, it's, it, the fulcrums of, of your personality and who you become. And so I'll never forget that. You know, I'm 18, almost 19 years old. I'm literally facing a lifetime in prison and I hadn't even experienced life yet. Yeah. Right. I had never experienced love. I had never experienced travel. I, there's so many things I had not done. And yet my life was almost over. Yeah. And, and that experience ultimately shaped who I would become and who I am today. So 
The sentence was ten and a half years, and you served half that. Five. Is that right? Five. Five. Okay. This was a transformative five years for you, obviously, in many ways. So, what can you tell me about your time in prison? You know, I guess I'm most curious about who you were coming in versus walking out, the transformation that happened for you within those five years. I definitely came out a much more serious person. So I always was a tremendous worker. I could put the work in. But prior to going into prison, I very much pined for wealth and respect and resources. And in fact, had come to associate success with material possessions, right? If you would have talked to me at 18 years old, success is the person who has the most money or success is the person with the the most material things. So think about that. That was my worldview. I get apprehended. I lose everything. I lose everything. I have nothing, nothing. And it's really those moments when not only was I stripped from all material possessions, but my mental model was clearly flawed. Like I was presented with a scenario that so clearly questioned everything I had based my life on that I had no choice but to accept it, right? I was presented with incontrovertible evidence that I had a faulty worldview. And so initially I was, you know, I was shook. I was, hell, I didn't know Everything at that point was open for re-examination, right? And I began to question everything, question you know everything that happened to me, things that happened to my family. And I just became incredibly serious. And I said to myself, well, most people go into these facilities, they come out and then they go back in, right? It's a term that we call recidivism. Yep. I knew I did not want that to happen to my life. And so for me, logically, it was like, okay, if 90% of these people leave and come back, what is it that those 90% of the people are doing? And I want to do the exact opposite. And so, you know, prison, the, the prison industrial complex, it is a business. It's a big business. There are private companies that operate in this space. So because prisons are a business, think about it. They want to house as many people as they can. So that's kind of your input. It's variable, right? How many people you're supervising, but your costs in many ways are fixed. You have a building, you have a certain number of guards per building. So the more product, right, which are the inmates, the more people in your facility you can serve, the higher your profit margins. And so one way these private facilities do this is they offer you many opportunities to take your mind off of perhaps your immediate situation. So you can buy a television. They would stream movies every Friday into the inside circuit system. They would play movies every Friday. I never watched any of those Friday movies. And in fact, I would take pleasure in the fact that everyone else, so there'd be you know 150 men in this cell block, 149 of them We're in their room at Friday night watching the latest theatrical release. I was the only person out there reading and studying. Wow. So you're saying these private prisons, they're paid per quote unquote head, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so the more inmates they have, and then they just keep the same overhead, the more obviously profitable the business is. It's, it's, It's that simple. Wow. 
And there's all these ways to engage, to enter, to, as opposed to build a future and a life in which you no longer live within these walls. The goal is to keep you complacent. You're yeah. complacent, you're just going about, going along to get along, just doing your time. That, that allows them to scale that business. When we come back, Yusuf makes a friend in prison, someone unlike anyone else he'd ever met, who would change the course of his life forever. Back after this short break. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Today's episode benefits the PD Green Program. The PD Green Program supports the academic goals of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people through high-quality volunteer tutoring programs. PD Green envisions a world in which all incarcerated people have access to high-quality academic programs, and they strive to inspire their alumni to become advocates and take on leadership roles that reimagine the criminal legal system. You can learn more at pdgreen.org. P-E-T-E-Y-G-R-E-E-N-E dot org. While I was in that private facility, there was a guy. He was actually originally from the Northeast. His name was Jesse. Jesse was a white guy. Master's degree in engineering. And he made the very unwise decision of defrauding the Kohler company, which is based in Kohler, Wisconsin. Kohler sinks? Yes, yes, yes. So you shouldn't defraud anyone, but I would definitely tell you not to defraud someone who the town is named after. So this guy, I mean, I don't know, he had like a 25-year sentence, but Jesse was an incredibly smart guy. Jesse was so smart. it, It was, you can't make this up. And and we're in Sayre, Oklahoma, right? And so you don't want to stereotype anyone, but Sayre, Oklahoma is like rust bucket, Oklahoma, very rural. And they were exploiting those guards as much as they were exploiting us. So they weren't the brightest people in the world, but Jesse was. And so Jesse had convinced these people to actually allow him to write memos on their behalf to the state of Wisconsin. Jesse had his own cell. Jesse even had a computer in his cell. Now, he didn't have the internet, but Jesse literally had a computer in his cell. And when Wisconsin would come to do inspections, you would know they were coming because they would come take Jesse's computer. (laughs) And uh, so I befriended Jesse. And I think Jesse appreciated that I was that only person out there reading and studying on a Friday night. And so he took an interest in me and Jesse's the one that introduced me to technology and and ultimately got me started on what became a 10 year career in, in technology. So as you said, you're hardworking, you're innately curious, you decide you don't want to be the 90%. You want to be the one in 10. You're released after five years you're in your young 20s coming out, criminal record, 23. 23. Sounds like a commitment to self that this will not be your path to go back of, you know, the walls you just walked out of. So what are those early months coming out and rebuilding your life? Challenging. And I will say, 
I was prepared for a challenge. So when I came home, I came home with the mindset that I was going to be poor for three to five years. Like I knew coming home, this was not going to be overnight. To give you a sense of how extreme I was when I was in prison, I would go outside when you would have like recreation time and it would be at, in the evening, it'd be cold outside. I would go outside in the cold and just stand there to inure my body to the cold weather because I knew I'm from Wisconsin and I was going to have to take public transportation. And I did not want to become disheartened come January and I'm out there waiting for the bus and I'm like, oh my God, I can't do this. I need to find another way to make money. I mean, I I, I used to do all types of extreme stuff, get myself up at 3 a.m. and do 500 pushups, not because I wanted to build muscle, but because I wanted to be able to control my body at any given moment and say, go do this. And so I really came home like, let's go. And I'm ready to deal with any type of adversity. Well, it was interesting when you said I was ready to be poor. And, you know, your story started with poverty and growing up Mm -hmm. in poverty. And many people have never experienced what that feels like. And I'm interested what poverty feels like in the soul. Is there a way to articulate that with words? Possibly, but I want to make a key distinction between the poverty I was anticipating at 23 and the poverty as a child. At 23, and this is significant, I no longer equated my self-worth with the things that I had. But before I went to prison, being poor was synonymous with being worthless as a person. Yeah. At 23 years old, I had completely disabused myself of that notion, and I knew anything of substance, anything durable was going to take time. And so that meant I I would not own a vehicle for a number of years. I knew I was going to be sleeping on the floor. I knew that I, when I came home, all of my clothes I purchased from the Goodwill. I had no problem with that. Because I knew who I was, the value that I brought to this world had nothing to do with where my shirt came from. And so that was a key distinction from when I came home. And when I talk about being prepared to not have a lot of material things, it was a different mindset. Got it. Yeah. So mindset was the word I was thinking that you, well, your circumstances, I didn't own a car. I shopped at Goodwill but you didn't have a lacking or a poor mindset. You knew that that was... Temporary. And I knew I had A short reality. That was part of the plan, part of the path. A hundred percent. I no longer inextricably tied up my sense of self-worth to the material things that I had. And that is huge. That, That is huge. would ultimately build, you know, not only a successful, but a meaningful Mm -hmm. and impactful career in real estate and housing equity. Yep. When do things start to tip in your favor, if you will, building the career and the life you have today? What's your quote, Kimmy, about process? How you do anything is how you do everything. (laughs) How you do anything is how you do everything. Yeah. And and that is, it's exactly, I think, the approach that I took coming home. No matter 
what work I was involved in. I mean, of course, I, I mean, I was trained, I taught myself um, technology and programming and the first educational credential I received because I didn't have the money or the time to go back to college was a Microsoft certification. But that took time. It took probably a year from my release to actually landing a job in the technology space, right? So I held jobs as a warehouse worker, as a call center representative. But in all of those jobs, I brought the same level of effort. In fact, I remember <laughs> my first job working in a warehouse. And I was there a couple of days. And so I, I pull my boss to the side and I'm like, you know, hey, Mr. Jones, I just, just want to check in to see how I'm performing. You know, are there areas I can improve? And the guy just looks at me like I'm crazy. And he's like, oh, well, just keep screwing the cabinets together. And, you know, but, but again, right, how you do anything is how you do everything. So you receive a Microsoft certification and you have a successful career in programming, traveling internationally, but that would eventually change for you and you would begin a career in real estate at a very unexpected time in our country's history of real estate. So tell me about that. So 2007, 2008, right before the foreclosure crisis hit, and and these are the way crises always happen, right? Everything is going up. And so you feel like if you don't, if you're not part of it, you're going to miss everything. So I purchased a home in a fledgling community that had you know, seen some recent public investment. So the city had pumped some money into the neighborhood. You know, this is where I purchased my my first home and was excited to be in the community, was excited to participate in the increasing upswing. And, you know, it was particularly sweet for me because this was a neighborhood that 10 years prior, I had quite frankly helped to certainly destroy in certain respects. And so I'm comfortably ensconced in this property. And then the foreclosure crisis hit. And because really many of the folks in that neighborhood were there because of some public subsidy, when the foreclosure crisis hit, people lost jobs, property values plummeted. I mean, that block, I'm not exaggerating when I say 80% of the homes went into foreclosure. It, It was just terrible. And so it was like trying to catch a fallen knife in terms of where these property values would land. And so as my neighbors began to move out, as blight began to move in, really became difficult for me to live there. I would come out of my home in the morning to get ready for work and you know you'd find drug vials on the ground, paraphernalia. I remember one time, you know, right across the street there was a, a man with a sex worker, you know, and I yell at the person and, and it was interesting because you would have thought the individual would have been embarrassed and pulled off, but he kind of like looked at me like I was the problem. And so I had to make a decision. And again, I was employed at the time. I could have moved to the suburbs, taken a loss on the house or rented it out. But I remember thinking to myself, and and this has never changed, right? Even the things that I'm working on today are motivated by this same thought process that if I don't do something to make a difference, who the hell is going to? If I don't care, and I'm from these communities, if I don't care, and I victimize these communities when I was a young person, who really is going to care? And so rather than move out of that neighborhood, I purchased the property next door to mine. And at the time, I, you know, I, I didn't know anything about home improvement or construction, but you know, like, like anything, right? Always having been an entrepreneur, you figure those things out. And so I put a lot of effort into that project, 
renovated the property, rented it out to a great family, bought the house on the other side of mine, again, because 80% of that block went into foreclosure. And actually in time, I would come to own most of it. I renovated that property and then the local NPR station did a story on me. And, and from there, kind of outside capital came my way. And within two years, I had quit my work as a full-time software developer and, and began to buy, manage, and renovate real estate. And you had 200? 200 units. 200 mm-hmm. units. And what was your mission, your vision? The vision and the mission, I mean, quite frankly, is that every person in that community, every person in this country, quite frankly, deserves access to safe, quality, and affordable housing. And ultimately, affordability is relative because what a property costs to rent is a function of what it costs to buy. And people don't oftentimes realize that, right? There's costs associated with the acquisition and operation of these properties. But at the time in Milwaukee, particularly during the foreclosure crisis, I mean, you could buy and renovate these properties relatively affordably. And so I felt rather than take an extractive view of this industry, right? So my goal wasn't to renovate these properties and charge the maximum amount of money. It was to renovate these properties, create a product that people would value, Right? There had to be a profit margin there because ultimately it was a business. Um, but to provide a living arrangement that someone you know could be proud of. Someone was happy to move into that place and ultimately would take care of it. Like I controlled in many respects the character and the quality of that neighborhood. And you know, there would be some homeowners that stayed the whole time, and you know, they they really respected me and appreciated the work that I did in those communities. And that's something that um, I'm very appreciative of. Yeah, but you know, you, I loved hearing you talk just about the emotional connection relationship to a space, to a home, the respect you have for it, that you didn't have that opportunity growing up. And here you are, not only creating it for yourself, but creating it for hundreds of families and how integral that is to a community and to the health of a community, the overall financial, emotional, physical, all of it. A hundred percent, right? I mean, my childhood was very transient. When you have a transient relationship with your community, right? If you just view where you live as a discrete place that you stay in for a discrete period of time, that influences how you view that community, right? So if there's a piece of trash floating around, why are you going to stop hell? I'm going to add trash to it, right? What do I care? But when you view where you live as your community, you start to take ownership. And that is so, so, so important. And I think that's the element we're missing when we have these public conversations around home ownership. And it, and it And ownership doesn't have to come from having the deed to that property because a lot of people, it's it's not best suited for their situation to own the property at that moment. But you don't have to own a property to have an ownership interest in a community. You do not have to have those two things simultaneously. And so by creating a product that was quite frankly of a superior quality, right? I wasn't just trying to renovate at the bare minimum. We wanted to create a product that I could be proud of. 
that I could take people through and say, I own this property. And people, they enjoyed their time working with me and living in my properties and ultimately uh, showed and demonstrated concern for the broader community. And I think that helped change the character of some of these neighborhoods. So eventually you would go to Princeton. Mm-hmm. Helpful that prison and Princeton both start with a P because it sounds good. You like that alliteration. (laughs) From prison to Princeton. (laughs) To prosperity. Let's add another P. Let's complete the alliteration. (laughs) Poverty, prison, Princeton. Yes, prosperity. Lots of P's. Tell me about that experience? How did you find yourself at Princeton? Mm -hmm. What did you learn about yourself at Princeton? Yeah. How did that happen? So while I was operating my business, I became active in public policy because a a lot of the impediments people face, believe it or not, are as a result of the policies that we have uh, in this country and in some of these communities. And so eventually I was elected to serve as the trade association president for the largest apartment owners group in the region. And that work took me to our state capital quite a bit. And we had a lobbyist and, you know, I would do different events for policymakers and lawmakers. And I got connected. There was a professor doing research around housing policy and we got to know each other and he thought I was a fairly bright person. And he said, have you ever thought about pursuing graduate school? And I hadn't. And it's interesting because if you think about my housing business, that wasn't intentional. Like I never set out and said, oh, I want to be landlord or own a property management company. And so, you know, I just never had been that intentional with my thinking professionally in in that way. And so, you know, when he made this suggestion, I'm like, you know, no, I never thought about it, but I've always loved education. And I started doing some research and you know, he told me about this program at Princeton and and I said, hey, why not think about it? And so I put in an application and received a full scholarship to attend Princeton University as a graduate student. And, you know, I felt like it was the right pivot in my career. I mean, the housing business, I mean, everything we have really, I owe to that experience. And so I'm incredibly grateful. And Milwaukee's still my hometown. I mean, that's, I still own property in Milwaukee. I just don't operate a full-time business there. And I knew I wanted to have a bigger impact. And my work as a trade association president demonstrated to me that you could have a bigger impact if you were influencing systemic change versus just doing direct service on the ground um, with the work that I was doing. So yeah, change the systems. Yeah. And I'm curious is going back to the two P's, we've had several conversations on this podcast with people who have spent time in prison. And I'm always curious about bringing the humanity to life of all of the the people who are incarcerated. So I'm trying to come up with a good way to ask this question. Okay. <laughs> but these two vastly different places, microcosms, you've got the campus, and I've been in both. I've been in prisons and I've been in at Princeton both times as journalist. So One is much nicer than the other. One is significantly (laughs) nicer than the other. But I I guess, is there a through line? Is there a common, I mean, like at its core for somebody who I just 
stepped on both once, you lived both. You lived both these vastly different cultures. So I don't know if you can have any through line there or if one even exists, but I'm just curious because you lived both so intimately and they're so different. Well, like any place, it's all a function of the people, right? So both are a function of the people. Yeah. And you take a place like Princeton, I mean, the level of intellectual rigor and capability is just tremendous. I, I remember, you know, it, you go to Princeton and you, you, you just, you can't help but perhaps feel inadequate intellectually because everyone around you is so smart. And, you know, when you think you belong in a place like that, that's why you apply. And so I've always thought very highly of my capabilities. And so, you know, you go there and you're like, ah, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought, but then you leave Princeton and you go back into the normal world. And you're like, yeah, I actually am pretty smart. I just yeah. happen to be in a, yeah. a a really unique environment where you had all these really, really curious, yeah. hardworking, really smart right. people. Yeah. You know, prison also, though, it's a function of the people. You know, I I hear people oftentimes, you know, who haven't been in these places, they only highlight one element of these facilities, right? And, and so there are really good people in, in prison, you know, people who've made mistakes and are going to experience redemption and, and make positive contributions. And you have other people that just, whew, they're working through some things and it's a very, very challenging situation. So uh, both both are just a function of the people. Yeah, it's well put. So you get your degree at Princeton and mm-hmm. now you you wrote a beautiful piece for the Washington Post sharing your father now, single father of a teenage mm-hmm. daughter, but your passion for housing, your passion for equitable housing is still a very ever-present part of your personal story and journey. So can you share what happened recently? Yeah. So when I graduated Princeton, our family moved from the college campus into the community. And so like any father, especially of a high school student, our house decision was going to be driven by the quality of the school district and the quality of the neighborhood. And of course our, our budget, right? But so fortunately we, we have resources. And so we identified a community we wanted to live in and I didn't think anything of it, right? You know, I mean, I put in the application, said, we'll take it. And the woman called me back two days later and said, you know, sorry, your application was denied. And my jaw dropped. I said, excuse me? And she said, unfortunately, your application has been denied. And I said, on what grounds? Right? Because I can pull out my privileged card. I've, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. I, you know, and the woman said, because you have a criminal record. And I said, do you realize that was 25 years ago? You know, and I felt bad for her. She's just a leasing agent. Like, I'm sorry, it's the policy. And I'll never forget after that initial wave of anger subsided, and it took a while, I said, I am going to change this. This is not right. And I am going to change this because if they will do this to me, imagine how many people, and quite frankly, I would learn that it would be millions of people they do this to. And so as part of my research and understanding how this happened, and this is all detailed in the Washington Post piece, I found out that this law was part of an amendments package to the Fair Housing Bill of 1988, and it was introduced by a noted segregationist, Strom Thurmond. And so this piece of legislation 
that quite frankly has probably done more to advance his segregationist agenda than any of his other policies is still in effect, but it's something that I am working fervently to rescind. Yeah. And you, you know, the way you put it in the article was your past sins, and we're talking 25 years, a quarter of a century, your daughter is paying the price. This, you know, she was excited to be in this neighborhood with this great school. Sad to read, but you beautifully laid out and illustrated what is actually behind this, which is racism from decades past. Well, I'm a firm believer. Um, If you work incredibly hard here in the United States, at least, and if the way you do anything is with excellence translates into the way that you do everything with enough runway, right? So you're 23 years old. I don't care what your background is. I'm confident you can build a decent life for yourself. Yeah. The challenge that I always give people, and I think this is what really matters, especially when we're talking about incarceration, because remember, that stuff is generational. My older brother was in prison. My father was in prison. For me, the challenge is, how can you live your life in a way that you change the trajectory for your children and everyone and everything that comes after you? Yeah. Right. That to me is the challenge that I issue to myself. And when we have a country that limits the opportunity of children of people who've made mistakes, but have turned their life around, we really have to think about who are we punishing and what are going to be the consequences of those decisions. And that's why, I mean, look, we're very fortunate. I don't want people to feel sorry for me or have sympathy. Honestly, like it's not necessary but I do want you to feel outrage that we have this system in this country. Yeah. And I assure you, we are going to change it. And so I've built a, uh, an agenda and an advocacy organization, a second chance housing for all.org. And we will change this. We will change this. Well, yeah. And in, in simple terms, you served your time. And then in your case, you've gone on to provide incredible service and, you know, build jobs and opportunities and housing and change. So the fact that there are consequences and that it limits the places and spaces that you can build a home with your daughter is just so unjust. Yeah. What do you think, you know, if you have a platform to educate people on equity and housing You know, is there one thing that you would want people to know? Around equity and housing? I mean, place matters. Place matters. I mean, a lot of this stuff we know empirically, right? There's just been so much research over the last 10 years. And where you are born, the zip code that you are born in is a predictor of where you're going to end up. And so, first of all, that should just outrage all of us because that goes against the very ethos of this country. Yeah. Right? But we have to acknowledge that. But but also the relationship between housing and recidivism, right? So people make mistakes. And we have to know this as a country. Most people who are sentenced to jail or prison come back out. So it behooves us to make sure they come out in a position to contribute to our society and our communities. Because as certainly my story and many other stories demonstrate, there's a lot of talent and potential behind bars that is going to come home. The question is, do we utilize it? Yeah. 
And there is a correlation between housing and recidivism. And so people who have been incarcerated experience homelessness significantly more than other populations. And so if you don't have that security, if you don't have that housing stability, how do you build your potential and now start to contribute to your communities? Yeah. You speak on stages around the country. You have a really powerful life story. What do you hope that people take away from your story when you share it? Well, I hope like any, and you masterfully tell stories, and you know this because you do tell such great stories, is that every person is going to take something a little bit different away from the story. So first of all, my goal when I give talks is to make sure that I'm able to connect with folks in a way that's meaningful for them. But I think the bigger arc of my story is really just the number of times that I've been able to turn adversity into opportunities. And I think that's that's incredibly powerful because people are going to experience adversity. You are going to experience challenges. And so it's not a question of if you're going to experience them. The question is, how are you going to respond to them? And I believe if you respond to challenges and adversity with with optimism and with a commitment to trying to make the most of it, you're going to be able to do great things for yourself and, and hopefully others. Well, Yusuf, thank you for all you do. And thank you for making the time today. Thank you so much for having me, Kimmy. I, I really, really appreciate it. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our composer and sound designer is John Lasala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. I want to take a quick moment to thank those of you who have recently left us such lovely reviews of the show. I especially love reading the one from the original Miss Pants. Love the name. Miss Pants wrote, love, love, love this podcast. Heart-wrenching and inspiring, all wrapped in one. We all have so much to learn from every person's story. Thank you for this. Well, thank you to Miss Pants. We really do read all your comments, and they mean so much to me and our team. If you want to hear more personal reflections from me, please sign up for our newsletter. You can visit our website at allthewiserpodcast.com, enter your email address, and you'll start receiving them every time we release a new episode. And as always, take care of yourself and each other. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.